So it's um, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 31. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honour your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children all fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Lord, thank you for this time that we have now to take time out and think carefully about entering your kingdom and the way that we should do that. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be people who continue in Christ in the right way. Please help us to be sensitive to this message now and to be ready to change our hearts in response to what you have for us here in this word. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're following on in my outline, you'll notice that the topic in the introduction is riches. Uh, this week, Gina Reinhardt, the world's richest woman, uh, was in the newspaper once again for her wealth and how it's being managed within her family. 
Apparently her son John uh, was trying to establish some kind of $15 million payout, a sorry payout, for how she's treated him over the last 15 years. I found that an interesting uh, little article to get caught up into because it seems that even that family, the world's richest woman, uh, they have problems with money. Isn't that intriguing? I don't know about you, I thought that was kind of funny. Normally you associate uh, problems with money being the fact that you're running out of money and uh, you've got some big expense because you've crashed the car and you, you need to cover things. And uh, here we have the world's richest woman with money trouble. Well, you'd think that solving these problems uh, with more money might be a way out. Uh, but the news that Gina has more money and she still can't solve her money troubles, in some ways it's a little bit encouraging even to people like us. We've got to throw cold water on the idea that if we just had enough money, all our money troubles would go away. The topic of wealth is one that comes up in the Bible fairly regularly. You might have seen that a bit as, uh, as we've continued to preach through God's word. But it's important for us to keep realising the limitations of wealth and keep wealth in its right place so that we avoid the pitfalls that go with it. But before Jesus starts to get into this idea of uh, how to think about wealth in the right way, he gives us an illustration about the way in which people are to enter God's kingdom. He's, he's concerned that people do get right with God, that they do enter the kingdom. And so he starts to talk about the values of the kingdom before this passage when he talks to his disciples. He reminds them that greatness within God's kingdom is different to greatness within the world. The topic of greatness comes up earlier when the disciples spend a bit of time arguing on the road among themselves and they're ashamed to tell him, but uh, they were, he asks them, he says, what were you arguing about on the road in chapter 9? And they say, well, they're arguing about who was the greatest. And so in that situation, Jesus takes a little child and he has the child stand amongst them and he tells them that greatness in God's kingdom is bound up with receiving someone like a little child. It's bound up with receiving someone who are the lowlies of the world, uh, those who aren't rich and famous. That's the kind of person that God values as great within his kingdom. Yet today we have almost something of a bit of a test case, did you notice? Because we see that the little children are coming to Jesus. And it's a good little test to see whether the disciples have understood this, uh, this idea about values in God's kingdom. The person who values the lowly and the little children, that's the person who is great in God's kingdom. And yet here, in this passage, what do we see happen? Well, we see that the opposite's happening in chapter 10, verse 13. If you're reading on with me, you can follow there. People were bringing the little children to Jesus to have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Well, the disciples' response to the children is what you might call poor form, isn't it? Maybe they didn't think that the children were that valuable. Maybe they thought that Jesus was just a bit too busy 
But instead of receiving the children, the problem is they're stopping them coming. When we read that Jesus is indignant, we're finding out that he's actually angry with this situation. It bothers him, it bothers Jesus that this kind of thing is happening. So he starts to get a hold of the disciples and he corrects them. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So what do we learn in this part of the Bible about Jesus then? Well, in the first place, we get a a picture of compassion, don't we? Children weren't necessarily prized within that kind of society. They weren't powerful. They weren't influential. But Jesus shows in this passage the way he goes and picks them up, that he loves them. In verse 16, he took the child, that took the children rather, in his arms, he put his hands on them and blessed them. And so we're given a marvellous picture as to what Jesus is like, and it's quite wonderful. This expression about putting them in his arms, it only comes up in a, in a couple of places. It shows his warmth. The second thing we see is that Jesus has a concern that people do get right with God. He's concerned that they receive God's kingdom and then enter it. He wants people to be saved. And so he starts to use the children as a a type of visual aid, if you could put it that way. And he teaches us through the children about the way in which someone is to receive the kingdom. In verse 15 he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. But the good question here is, what does Jesus mean when he says, enter the kingdom like a little child, or receive it like a little child? Is he talking about a child's humility when he's talking about receiving the kingdom? I was talking to Joanne about this. Children aren't always renowned, are they, for being humble? I don't know if you ever remember catching the bus and uh, how kids sometimes behave when there's no one around. Sometimes they're a bit boastful and, uh, you know, someone's saying how much faster they can run than the next person and somebody wants to tell a story and they want to boast about how they've got a story that beats that. Then again, some some adults do that too, don't they? Anyway, (laughs) but they're not always humble kids, are they? But children are characterised by not being particularly powerful. They can't normally take charge of their lives and their livelihoods, can they? They're they're ones who receive things in trust. Uh, That's why we call them dependents. They they don't really have much of a choice about which primary school they're going to go to. They just get sent off to some particular place and they just have to trust the people who are looking after them. Now, I think it's this kind of aspect of childhood that Jesus is tapping into. Those who receive God's kingdom and who will later enter it will be doing so not because they're forcing their way in. They're going to be entering and receiving God's kingdom because they're, they've got a simple trust and dependence upon Jesus who helps them into it, who welcomes them into his family. Well, a good question for us to wrestle with is, will we be people like that? Will we receive God's kingdom like a little child? As adults, we're often uh, working hard at not being dependent on anybody. We're working out ways which we can actually be the ones who provide 
We're looking at ways we can cope with life when other people are finding things difficult. But when it comes to thinking about entering God's kingdom, the tables turn once again and we have to cast our minds back to being like children who depend on those to provide for them. And so we need to continue to be people who depend on God's grace. He's the one who's going to take us into the kingdom. It's not because of things we might have done. Well, in the next story, we see someone who's a little bit opposite to these little children, don't we? While they're not very powerful or influential, this next character, he's known as the rich young ruler. In Mark's gospel, he's presented as a rich man. In Matthew, he's young. And in Luke's gospel, he's a ruler. So he's known as the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus with a real concern. We see it in verse 17, if you're reading on. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This character comes to Jesus with a, a, a genuine concern. He wants to be sure that he's right with God both now and that he will be right with God in the future when he meets God. He lacks the assurance that everything's okay with him and God. And so he comes in a very sincere way before Jesus. He bows before Jesus and he calls him good teacher. But when Jesus speaks to him, he asks the question, he says, why do you call me good? Perhaps Jesus is getting him to stop and think for a little while about this whole business of trying to be even good enough for God. And he goes on and makes the, the same kind of point. He says, no one is good except God alone. And by saying that, Jesus is implying that nobody is good enough for God. Not Princess Diana, who was alive and everybody loved. Not Mother Teresa. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're part of the, the human tribe, if I could call it that, nobody will ever be good enough for God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in answering this serious question about how this guy can be sure that he's right with God, that he'll enjoy being saved and enjoy eternal life, Jesus brings his attention back to his response of faith. And he points out the way that God's provided for his people to live. He talks to him about the law that God's handed down. In verse 19, he says, You know the commandments. Do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and your mother. That approach to uh, living out God's law would have also included participating in the Day of Atonement and the other sacrifices as the means of dealing with sin. And that would have been the way that someone would have been a faithful Jew and they would have enjoyed life with God. Jesus is against a legalistic approach to the law and a misunderstanding and a misuse of the law, but he's not against the law per se. And he commends the law and that way of life to this rich young ruler. But at this point in the story, this gentleman seems to say that he's got it all stitched up. He's got that covered. In verse 20 he says, Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. But the question is, did he really keep all of God's commands? 
Jesus in this part of the Bible is only focused on the second half for the most part of the Ten Commands, Ten Commandments. He didn't actually bring the guy's attention to the first half and the one about coveting. He doesn't talk about worshipping God alone. He doesn't say anything about idolatry, nor keeping, uh, not taking the Lord's name in vain, the Sabbath or the coveting command. And so it's interesting to note that as Jesus diagnoses this guy's problem, the missing jigsaw piece puzzle of this guy's life, he looks at him and he loves him. In verse 21, Mark tells us Jesus looked at him and loved him as he's trying to work out what's the thing that's missing in this guy's life. Jesus cared about this person. It's a bit different to the story I heard of somebody who went to the Thai restaurant and when the waiter asked how hot they'd like their curry, he says, oh, no, I like it pretty hot, put a bit of pep in it. And the waiter looked at him and thought, okay, bit of pep in it, eh? We'll fix you. And uh, came out, brought the curry back in. And the bloke described the curry mouthful as a, a napalm strike to the mouth. Which, those of you who don't know, napalm is a... Uh, and it's sort of a very hot explosive that ruins foliage. Uh, apparently he still he ate all his curry and thanked the person who gave it to him. But uh, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't look at him and think, you know, in the tradition that I come from, people were wrestlers and I'll, I'll fix you. He's not going to fix the guy. He looks at the guy and he cares for him. And so he touches on the thing that the guy needs to know. And he says, the touchstone issue for you, or if you like, the thing that you lack, is bound up with where your heart is in relation to loving God or loving your wealth. In verse 22 he says, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Yet other people, when they've been challenged by Jesus to come and follow him in, in a similar kind of way, they've actually passed the test. In Mark chapter 1, verse 18, the disciples leave their nets and they follow Jesus. In 1, verse 20, they leave their father and follow Jesus. And Peter speaks about all of them in chapter 10, verse 28, and says, We have left everything to follow you. But this man who's confronted with this specific message to sell up and give to the poor and then follow Jesus, it's too much for him and he can't handle it. Is this a universal call for every Christian to follow? Is this part of the Bible's message to us to say that we should also sell everything, give to the poor and then follow Jesus? I'm not sure it is actually that way. Uh, part of the reason is because there's another character that comes later in the Bible called Joseph of Arimathea and he actually goes and buys Jesus's grave clothes. He's got to actually have some money to do that. Uh, it seems that this is a specific thing for this particular person. Earlier Jesus has already said if your hand causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go into hell. It might be this is his issue that he's had to cut off. This guy happens to be struggling with his own idolatry or his greed. 
It's interesting, though, that although wealth is generally a blessing from God, in this situation, it becomes a trap for him and it actually becomes a curse. And we're reminded of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. He said, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? This character could have had treasure in heaven, but he chooses the earthly wealth. He chooses the loot in this age, and he misses out on salvation. We know that because with his body language about his face falling, uh, it's a similar kind of language that's used to describe the weather when it gets gloomy or dark. This guy's got a thunder cloud over him as he walks away. And he chooses not to follow Jesus and he chooses to avoid eternal life. In verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, I don't think there is a particular gate called the eye of the needle that the camels had to get down on their knees and start to try to crawl through, or some other people have decided that the word is more closer to a rope, but even then you couldn't stick a rope through a little needle. Uh, I think what Jesus is saying, it's not going to happen. For those people who've been eating at the table too long, that they've lost their soul, they don't love God, they love wealth more, they're not going to enter God's kingdom. But why is it that it's hard for a rich person to enter God's kingdom? Well, I think it comes back to the topic of love, doesn't it? Does one love riches more than they love God? In this rich young ruler's case, that was the problem. But for the purpose of today's meeting and for us, the challenge is also one before us, isn't it? Do you love riches more than God? Do I love riches more than God? And another question that's worth thinking about is how do you feel when that question's even posed to you? When somebody asks you whether you love riches more than God? I think it's a good question for us to think about because loving riches isn't so much about the idea that we love frolicking in money like those ridiculous Oz Lotto ads that you might have seen with clowns standing on the back of semi-trailers trying to tamp down all the dollars and they've got problems trying to drive under bridges because there's that much cash in the back of the truck. I don't think that's the big attraction, the, the idea of frolicking in money. I think the temptation to love riches more than God's bound up with the fact that money is kind of liquid power. When I go out to a restaurant and order the fish, somebody else has had to have caught the fish first and cook it in a way that I don't. They don't dry it out. And then they serve it to me in a polite way, and I eat the fish, and the best news is that I don't have to clean up after seven people. That's fantastic. But other people at times, they think just because they've got the liquid power, they can even be rude to the waiter or the waitress who's serving them. The same kind of thing can be said for a motel, can't it? When you go to the motel, somebody else makes the bed and washes the towels. Some people think just because they're paying for the privilege, they can throw the wet towel on the floor and leave a mess in the place and forget the fact that there's somebody who's going to be cleaning the place up. I think the attraction to wealth isn't so much the, the Oslotto pictures of frolicking in money, 
It's the fact that it's liquid power and it has the potential to capture our hearts more than love for God. And so it's good for us to be confronted with this challenge about whether we do love God or riches. Christians recognise that uh, all wealth is God's anyway. The psalmist write about the Lord owning a cattle on a thousand hills. And it's those terms in which we ought to understand it. We're custodians of what God owns and we can enjoy it, but it can be a trap. Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. The disciples might have thought that wealth was a sign of God's blessing and that if the rich didn't make the cut to enter God's kingdom, who could? Perhaps when Jesus is saying this, he's referring to the fact that salvation has its origin in God, that God can save all kinds of people. He can work even within the heart of the rich, that they might also be people who do repent and believe the gospel. They put their trust in Jesus, who's Lord of all, the Lord and Saviour of our sin. But what does Jesus want from us? Well, in the first place, I think he wants us to learn the lesson from this rich young ruler, doesn't he? And it doesn't matter what level of wealth you've got, does it? You could be dirt poor or filthy rich, but you could still have a covetous heart. And we should feel the weight of the question of whether we do love money more than God. A side thought as we think about wealth is how we can use our wealth in a godly way. For example, when I've talked about going out to a restaurant, we can use the wealth in the right way. And we don't have to be rude to the person who's serving us. We can be polite to them in a restaurant or a cafe. If we go and stay in a motel, which doesn't happen to me very often, trying to get a place for seven kids and a wife, it's pretty costly stuff. We'll be back to the tent, I think. Uh, We can still look out for the uh, towels that go on the floor and hang them up and try to take into account that somebody's going to clean the room. If we're going to spend some money, we can still be respectful to the people who are serving us. When it comes to wealth promoting the gospel, that's a, that's a good question for us to wrestle with and to think about how we can contri- contribute to that too. I sound like Porky Pig there, didn't I? Bit, bit, bit. Uh, the reason I say that is because it is good for looking after the poor. And a lot of people in our societies do get generous and our governments get generous as well and they do seek to give relief to the poor. And that's a good thing to do. I'm not against that. But the difference is those people aren't necessarily going to be paying for the missionaries or gospel ministry. Only the Christians are going to be committed to that kind of thing. So it's important for us to think about how we can use our wealth in a godly way for the promotion of the gospel. And I've got to say, friends, every time when I teach scripture in the schools and I use the scripture material of the book that this church makes a decent contribution to and some other churches do, I'm very glad because those books are going out to hundreds of kids and they're getting the Bible taught to them pretty well, and that helps me to be a better scripture teacher every time. Those things are really good investments in promoting the gospel, and I think that's a godly use of wealth. Well, in the final section, Peter raises the question about the issue of the cost to follow Jesus. In verse 28, Peter says, We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus responds by giving the assurance that 
what's lost isn't that bad compared to what they actually gain in this life and in the life to come. Verse 29, he says, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. When I, became, when I was a teenager and I really, I suppose, came back into the fold, came back into church life, I was very glad to have a new kind of family called the church. It was wonderful. And at times I enjoyed the hospitality of people and different houses. I didn't spend too much time in the fields, but uh, I think Jesus has got this in mind. He's saying there's a, a kind of a, a new family that people join when they become a Christian and they enjoy new friends, family and hospitality. There is persecutions that come with being part of the new people of God as well and he's clear about that. So that's something we have to accept as a normal part of the Christian life. We will not always be at the centre of what's popular. We might hold views that are unfashionable at times but that's what we've been called to. But the blessings from God are not limited to this age that we become part of a new family. The high point in this passage comes back to that quest from this uh, rich, rich young ruler. He wants eternal life. And Jesus says, we're blessed in this age and with eternal life as well. He sadly missed out, but may we be people who don't miss out. May we be different to that rich young ruler, more like children who are receiving the kingdom of God as simply being dependent on Jesus and his gift of eternal life. May God help us to be people who continue in the Christian life to trust Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, be the people who, who do continue to follow him, be obedient to him and enjoy life with him both in this age and in the life to come. Well, Gina Reinhardt certainly had some struggles with wealth and I think we're going to continue to see that being played out. doesn't matter how much money you've got, it seems. Money's always going to be a, a tricky one. But let's uh, recognise the limitations of wealth and see that it'll only, it's only got so much value. Uh, it's more important to make sure that we've got life both with God now and into eternity. May God help us to press on and keep wealth in its right perspective. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we do give you thanks for this day that we can consider the values of your kingdom and how things are turned upside down. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be people who receive the lowly like little children, those who aren't uh, rich and famous. Lord, help us to be people who enter your kingdom, not by trying to force our way in, but relying with simple dependence on Jesus and his work on our behalf. And Lord God, we pray that as we enjoy the wealth that you've given to us, uh, we wouldn't be seduced away from our love for you and to love money more than you. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to keep that in its proper perspective and to use wealth, that's your wealth, in a godly way. Lord God, we give you thanks that wealth can be used for the promotion of the gospel message about salvation that's found in Christ. And Lord God, we pray that you would help us to be people who continue 
to enjoy the blessings of your new family and we look forward to uh, living with you in the age to come and enjoying eternal life. We pray that you'd help us to stand firm and enter your kingdom and we give you thanks for this encouragement from Mark's Gospel this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.